Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode B, Joy in the Kingdom of Brothers, Part 2. So the story goes, the Ratnavati was the daughter of a, a rich man from Vallabhi. You remember Vallabhi, that was the, the city, that, that new capital that we talked about in the last episode. It's in that peninsula that juts out into the sea in northwest India, modern-day Gujarat. Anyway, Ratnavati's father had made his fortune in Vallabhi running ships. And he needed business alliances, contacts in other cities. So he married Ratnavati off to a merchant family from another town. Trouble was that Ratnavati's new husband, Balabhadra, was his name, didn't really like her. In fact, the new husband disliked her so much that he did anything he could to avoid her. He would take long routes around her room to avoid her, and if she was in a corridor, he would scamper out of the way. And because Ratnavati's husband treated her with such disdain, gradually everyone else in the house started to follow suit. The servants treated her badly, the uncles and aunts, the children, all of them treated her with utter contempt. So it was a pretty miserable existence for Ratnavati. And one day she was outside on the streets weeping. What else could she do? When she saw an old woman, a Buddhist nun, and by and by they fell into talking about things, and pretty soon the whole of Ratnavati's sorry tale was out. The nun gave her opinion. She said, Ratnavati, you've obviously been a terrible person in a former life, and what you need to do is go and commit lots of penance and do lots of prayer and that sort of thing. But Ratnavati was also looking for a more practical solution. Pretty soon, the two women came up with an idea. Later that day, the Buddhist nun approached the husband, Balabhadra, and the nun handed him a ball, a thing to play with. She said, Look, there's this rich merchant's daughter. She's well-educated, well-spoken, beautiful. She lives only a few houses over there. Yeah, that one. And anyway, she's in love with you. So what she would like you to do is to take this ball and go out and play in a certain garden in the city. And if you go at the right time, she'll be there waiting for you. Well, the husband was rather excited by this. He seems to have been the sort of chap who liked women as long as he wasn't married to them. And he had a particular thing for rich, well-educated women. And he had a very particular thing for rich, well-educated women who were a bit forward, which this was by ancient Indian standards. So, at the appointed time, the husband headed out to the appointed garden with the ball. And there he met the most charming woman. If there was something familiar about her face, or maybe that was just because he'd seen her before going about the town, After all, the houses weren't far apart. So the affair between the husband and the mysterious garden woman carried on, growing in intensity. After a while, each proclaimed their love for one another. A bit after that, they started to dream of running away together. And then, a bit after that, they came down to practically planning it. And all the while, the husband was doing whatever he could to avoid that wife he'd been forced to marry. Finally, the husband and the lover settled on a concrete plan. The husband would abandon his family and they'd run away together, the husband and this charming woman, to a different city. And that's exactly what they did. 
They fled to a different city, and the husband started up a merchant business. And the husband was good at his job. Pretty soon they were doing well. They were rich, they were wealthy, and they were tremendously in love. The milk of wellness attracts jealous flies. And soon enough, sinister characters were lurking at the rim of their lives, looking for an opportunity to suck up some of their wealth. In particular, there was a local magistrate. He found a servant of the happy house who had been mistreated, and from the servant he extracted the history of the couple. They had run away together. He had abandoned his family. They weren't even really married. Well, this was a huge scandal. A big enough scandal to have the husband punished and to have all of his property taken away. And then, if the magistrate played his cards right, all that property would be there for anyone who was quick enough to grab it. The magistrate pounced. A case was filed. Balabhadra, that man, he's a fraud. The woman he's with is not his wife. Balabhadra heard the news. And he was still a cad, so he decided to blag his way through the accusation. He said, no, 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 this woman, she's my wife. What are you talking about? I tell you what we'll do. We'll have a, a picture painted of her and we'll send it off to her father. He will tell you the truth. I mean, he's an honourable man. He's, he's a merchant. He runs this shipping business up in Vallabi. And, and anyway, why would he lie? So a picture was sent of his wife. The answer came back. Yes, that's my daughter, said the merchant from Vallabi. Because, of course, it really was his daughter. Clever Ratnavati had arranged to have an illicit affair and run off with her own husband, and she had been the other woman all along. Her husband, by the way, he never caught on. He thought that Ratnavati's father had made a mistake. Perhaps the picture they had sent him wasn't a very good one. And anyway, the husband recalled that back when he had first set his eyes on his new beloved, she'd seemed familiar somehow. And now he thought about it, he realised that she looked just a little bit like that woman he'd been made to marry. I mean, not much, just a little bit, but enough perhaps for a rich and foolish merchant to confuse the two. Great story, that. It's from the story of the Ten Princes, written sometime about the period of this series, maybe a little bit after. Some of these old stories are really powerful in the modern world. Some of them are still very well known, and people care about them a great deal. Over the past couple of days, there have been riots up in North India over the release of a film about one of these stories. Buses and cars being burnt, people injured, lots of people arrested, hundreds of women threatening to burn themselves alive if the film is screened. Pretty worrying stuff. The film itself, by the way, isn't very good, apparently. I haven't seen it yet. But it goes to show how much people care about these stories, how much of their identity can be invested in it. And I'm pretty sure there are plenty of people who care in this deep way, but are, are too reasonable and too level-headed to go and turn that into violence. It's nothing to be sniffed at. So, it's been a good reminder for me to say again how many mistakes I make, including some last week. Last episode, I talked about how Vallabi was a port on the sea. Now, in my defence... That's what almost all the history books say about it. For the very good reason that it was a major port. And I did note that nowadays the city is a long way from the sea. But otherwise I just swallowed the historian's line. Bad idea. 
Historians, it turns out, are not great at working out how coastlines change. For that, you need a completely different sort of expert. And if you ask that different sort of expert, they dig out satellite images and geological knowledge. And they will tell you that Vallabi was not a seaport. Sure, it was closer to the sea than it is today, but it wasn't right on the sea. It was an important port, but it was a river port. So, the plan is to spend the first half of this episode visiting Vallabi. Now, I know where it really was in relation to the sea. We're going to be on our way to the great university monastery there. In the second half of the episode, we're going to pick up the story from the last episode, starting with the Maitraka king, Shiladitya I. And there, we're going to hear one of my favourite stories out of all of the Maitraka stories, because for almost the first time in ancient India, we see how the tales of a regional kingdom weaves together with the tales of great empires. Ready? Let's go. We're sailing in an Indian vessel, northwards. Towards our right, the waters of the Namada River surge into the Gulf. Waters taken from thousands of kilometres inland, in the centre of India. To our left, lies the coast of the Katiawa Peninsula. Studded along the coast of the peninsula are, are temples. There's one to Shiva, there's, there's another to a goddess. And the temples are built right up against the sea. So their dark eaves reflect on the waves, and their staggered roofs are, are picked out dark against the evening sky. Each temple is built in a local fishing town or a village, and around it are boats at anchor. These temples are not the grand creations of royalty. They're fairly small, simple things, not much ornamentation. We sail past them, keeping track of which one we're near, making our way further up the gulf. As we go, we pass towns that specialise in industry, a town which harvests shells from the sea and carves them. Other parts of the coast we see smoke blackening the sky, great ironworks near the coast where traders come for metal. The warehouses there are stocked with goods, waiting for traders. But we slide past, further up the gulf. Then we turn into a river on our left, following other boats upstream, and we come to a town, a city really, fabulously wealthy, its gardens packed with fat merchants and their wily daughters. This is Vallabi. We've arrived. We're going to the great monastery complexes of Vallabi. These form the second great Buddhist university of India. Not really a university, but it's a place for education. In the time of the Maitrakas, at the time of this episode, the university had become tremendously prestigious. In fact, it had come to be a genuine rival to Nalanda, the major, older university far to the east. Unfortunately, we can't have a guided tour of Vallabi, but we can tell some of its stories. We can start to understand what it was like to study there. One of the early monasteries there was founded by a woman. Her name was Dada. She was a niece of one of the Matraka kings, one of those four brothers of the founder we talked about last week. Dada secured funding for the monastery, the income from a few of those fine fields and gardens we passed on our way into the city. 
And amongst other things, this funding secured and amongst other things, this funding secured books for the library. And that really marks it out as a tremendously important place. Libraries pretty rare, very expensive. Since Dudda's time, other monasteries have been added. Six more to the Dudda complex, and then another smaller complex with a couple of convents for nuns, nuns, and around five monasteries or so. As we approach it, it must have seemed to us a huge, sprawling complex. And a busy complex too. 6,000 monks studied there. It wasn't just a university for Buddhist monks though. We know that others came from across India to study there. Students made the long journey, even from central India, a thousand kilometres or more. And they came whether they were Buddhists or whether they followed Brahminical orthodoxy or neither. In fact, students came from even further afield from that, with some of them coming from outside of India altogether. So there's quite a cosmopolitan crowd. And when teaching begins, they gather in the courtyards, crowding around, hearing the debates about what is possible and what is impossible. If there was a focus of the teaching in the university, the focus was on the so-called lesser vehicle of Buddhism. That marks it out from the rival university, Nalanda, to the east, which focused on greater vehicle Buddhism. And by the way, that's why we know a good deal less about Vallabhi than Nalanda. Most of our information about the day-to-day lives in these universities comes from foreigners, for the very natural reason that foreigners find everything different and noteworthy and so they note it down. If you've lived in one of these institutions pretty much your whole life, you probably never make a note about what the monks are eating or who serves the water and when. All of that just seems natural to you. So foreigners make the notes about these otherwise mundane facts about these institutions And as it happens, most of the foreigners who are coming to Buddhist universities were from China. And in China, they followed the greater vehicle Buddhism, so they naturally spent time at Nalanda, which specialised in that sort of Buddhism. But it wasn't that Vallabhi focused only on lesser vehicle Buddhism and Nalanda only on greater vehicle Buddhism. In fact, both universities had a broad curriculum. And all sorts of Buddhism was studied at Vallabhi. Indeed, monks who had studied under masters at Nalanda, after they finished their studies there, came to Vallabhi to teach and set up schools of thought on their own, much like an academic will move from one university to another in the modern day. But it wasn't just a focus on the various sorts of Buddhism. There were texts and ideas from Brahminical orthodoxy that were also taught at Vallabhi. And then there was quite a lot of what we would think of as secular studies, Business, agriculture, law, economics, bookkeeping, and nitty, the the study of statecraft. And that study of statecraft seems to have been a focus, at least it seems to have been of serious interest to quite a lot of students. Because many of those people who completed their studies at Vallabhi would leave, and they'd go and find the court of some king or other, and they would start explaining schemes, laying down the sharp weapon of their abilities, as the ancient texts say, in front of these kings, showing off in these courts, hoping to get a job as an advisor. And I suspect many of them got a job as an advisor in some kingdom or other because Vallabhi University was prestigious, even internationally famous, and its teachers and its graduates were highly esteemed. Vallabhi University grew under the Maitrakas. 
this royal family we're following in, in this couple of episodes. The royal family, in fact, spent a lot of time supporting Buddhist institutions. We know of around a hundred of the royal family's grants over the course of 150 years. We know about them because of the inscriptions they left behind. Well, fully 20 of these hundred grants were to Buddhist monasteries. And those were especially generous grants because almost half of all the villages they donated were to these 20 monasteries. This great generosity to Buddhist institutions might strike us as a little bit surprising because almost everyone, in almost every generation of the Maitraka family, worshipped Shiva. It wasn't a family of Buddhists in general. But compared to 20 grants to Buddhist monasteries, there was only a single grant given to a temple of Shiva in the whole 150 years of the family that we're interested in. Actually, there was one of the Maitraka kings who seems to have been a Buddhist, at least towards the end of his life. His name was Guhasena, he was in the third generation of rulers, he was the son of the last of the four brothers we talked about last week. Here's his stat sheet. He ruled for around 16 years, starting in 553 AD. And here's the usual collection of grand descriptions that you get from the inscriptions. He was handsome, he was fabulously wealthy, he obeyed the laws and kept the people happy just as a king should. His sword was a second arm to him since childhood. Which makes you wonder where his fleshy second arm went, and whether he was born with one hand. But I assume he wasn't. It's a bit harder to make out the person behind the epithets, behind the stats. King Guhasena seems to have written poetry. Not only in Sanskrit, but also in Prakrit, some more colloquial language. Unfortunately, none of the poetry survives to tell us about his innermost self. Gurusen is usually thought of as the first genuinely independent ruler of the family. No trace at all that he's being ruled over by the Gupta Empire, whereas you can't say the same for his predecessors. But even that part of the story that Gurusen is, sort of, is the first independent king is easy enough to doubt, and plenty of historians do. Guhasena made three donations that we know about. All three of them were to Buddhist institutions. In the first one, he describes himself as a great devotee of Shiva. So far, so normal for my trucker king. In the second one, he does the same. I'm a great devotee of Shiva. But in the third, he describes himself as a great devotee of Buddha. It may have been that Dada, the founder of one of those monasteries and his cousin, convinced him to follow Buddha. But if he really did convert to Buddhism, it didn't change that much. Nothing about the apparatus of, state, of the state really changed. For example, Nandi, Shiva's bull mount. Nandi, the symbol of Nandi, was used by the dynasty as a sort of mark of the dynasty. It was on the coins and so forth. That didn't change. If the king adopted Buddhism... Maybe that influenced a little bit where the royal treasury was spent, but it didn't influence much else besides that. And in any case, all of the people who came after him worshipped Shiva, and they continued to support Buddhist institutions. And in particular, they continued to support the university monasteries at Vallabhi. Still, don't get the impression that all of these monasteries and all of this complex has been built by the royal family. 
That's not the case at all. In fact, the royal family has only constructed one, maybe two of these monasteries. These aren't royal institutions we're visiting. Instead, the royals just helped support the monasteries once they were built. They paid for upkeep, a bit of repairs here and there, the clothes the monks are wearing, they're paid for by the royals, the medicines the monks are taking, they're paid for by the royals, the books in the library, those also come from the royals. But the buildings themselves, they're funded by normal people. Well, maybe not entirely normal people, rich people, rich merchants from the region. The founders of the monasteries, these rich merchants, even named the monasteries after themselves, complete with titles. So uh, a chap called Ajitta gave some money, founded a monastery, and it was called the Ajitta Monastery. A chap called Kaka gave some money, founded a monastery, and it was called, yes, you've guessed it, the Kaka Monastery. Your name on our monastery. That's not something that you would have thought monks wanted. I've heard talk of Buddhist monks of this period wanting to steer clear of any attachment to merchants whatsoever. After all, they were supposed to be apart from all of that separate and alternative way of life. Though, on the other hand, I suppose that universities today also have lots to do with private businessmen. In fact, over the last years, universities have started appearing all over India, bearing the name or at least funded by the money of a famous businessman including one university which I very much admire and to which I'm very grateful indeed for giving me a job. Thanks. Speaking of modern and ancient Indian universities, a few months back there was a call to start the great University of Alabi up again. Nalanda University, the rival, that's been started again, though I hear it's been a bit of a rocky start. I don't know much about that. According to the news reports, the idea is to start up Vallabhi as a distinctly Buddhist university a modern university trying to follow some of the ancient curriculum. Now, we've seen the university monastery complex, so let's get back to the palace. We're going to pick up the story of the king that we met last week, Shiladitya I. That's skipping quite a bit forward from the founding of the Vallabhi monasteries. Shiladitya is the seventh generation of the Maitraka kings, but because in the Maitraka family, younger brothers tended to inherit the throne from older brothers, he's not the seventh king, he's the fifteenth king. Last episode, we talked about Shiladitya's dealings with the Jains and the Buddhists. In this episode, we're going to turn to matters more political. And in fact, there are really two different political stories here. Best seen together, interwoven, they form one embroidered picture. The first thread is the story of the internal family politics. The clash of brothers, the clash of large personalities which lift up the family fortunes only to have them fall down and then rise up again. The second thread is the story of the politics of the great emperors of India. The emperor of the north, Harsha, the emperor of the south, Pulakeshin. And in between them, the small kingdom of the Maitrakas is being pushed back and forth, like driftwood in the waves, to rise up and fall and rise again. It's a story with a bunch of complex turns and, and an awful lot of characters. I'm going to name them, but you don't need to know any of the names. You know the name Harsha already, and that's about it. 
In the Katiawara Peninsula, a new king was being crowned. The first of a new generation, King Shiladitya, which means something like virtue of the sun, although I think we translated it differently last time. Never mind. As Shiladitya was being crowned, a month's journey to the north, a son was being born. His father was a king, and his father was exceedingly happy, because for years he'd prayed for children. And now here was his second child. Although, of course, because it was the second child of a comparatively minor king, probably no one outside the kingdom took much notice. And if they didn't, that was a mistake. Because the young child was also called Shiladutya. But his other name was Harsha. And he would one day become emperor of North India. Skip forward 14 years. Up north, all seems well with Harsha's kingdom. Harsha's a young lad learning to fight with the sword and running around the palace grounds with his close-knit group of friends. His kingdom seems secure too. His father has allied the kingdom with the greatest power in the region, the power based in Malwa, the crossroads of northern India. Harsha's kid sister has been married off to seal the alliance, to make it firm. And Harsha's father now feels secure enough to start raiding neighbouring kingdoms. It's all one content, warring, happy family. Everyone's doing exactly what they should be. Older sons learning how to run the kingdom, younger son Harsha learning just to fight, and the king setting an example by doing both. Down in Katiawad, family matters are not going so smoothly. King Shiladitya is still there, but his younger brother is gaining power. King Shiladitya is still on the throne, But increasingly, the provinces are wholly in the hands of his younger brother. The inscriptions make it clear. One says that King Shiladitya behaves as if he were the god Indra, the elder brother of Upendra. Okay, maybe that's not clear to you, but it's certainly clear to an ancient Indian. It's a clever device comparing Shiladitya to the the king of the gods, Indra, but also saying that Shiladitya is being shown up by his kid brother, because Indra gets basically shown up by Upendra in one of the stories. Indra shows deference to Upendra. Another inscription puts it even more graphically. Shiladitya was excessively full of respect for Karagra, his younger brother. A Chinese monk passing through the region just a few years later thought that there were two different kingdoms ruled over by the Matrakas. One to the north and one to the south. And this may well have been because Shiladitya's brother was taking control of the south of the kingdom. Now, Matraka kings often passed the kingdom on to their younger brother after they died. But it seems that King Shiladitya's younger brother couldn't wait. He wanted to inherit the kingdom a little bit ahead of schedule. Skip forward just another two, three years, and the fortunes of both kingdoms have changed dramatically. Up north, Harsha's happy family has been torn apart. On the same day, his father and his mother died. Their allies down in Malwa invaded and were defeated. Harsha's sister, who was married off to them, was taken captive. His brother was murdered. His kingdom is surrounded by enemies, and that whole mess, the only person who can do anything about it, is Harsha, a grieving teenager, 
a man alone, a man who is never prepared for taking the throne, who's never meant to, and who had never been to war. Down south, things were looking happier in the Maitraka family. King Sheladitya had seen an opportunity. He'd heard news of the fall of the great power in Malwa, and he'd sent out his armies. He was going to invade Malwa and take it for his own. And this invasion of Malwa by the Maitrakas makes perfect sense from the Maitraka point of view. Malwa and Katiawad, the Maitraka homeland, seem to have had a sort of natural affinity for one another at this time. Outsiders saw them as basically having the same culture, the same food, being more or less the same people. So the armies went out. And most likely these armies were commanded by Shiladitya's son. His name was Derabata, but that won't matter for our purposes. Terabata comes in for a lot of praise in the inscriptions. He's called the master of the countries between the mountain ranges of the Western Ghats and the Vindhyas. Even more loftily, the sun is called Lord of the Earth. It's said that Earth's bulky breasts are the Vindhya mountains, and that he's Lord of them. Inscriptions get pretty graphic in some ways. And it's not just that Shiladitya's son is a good warrior, he's also a darn good bloke. He's compared to a great Shaver saint, a sage. But unlike Harsha, this promising young man was never destined to inherit the throne. It wasn't that he was killed off by some evil uncle or lost his life in battle. Instead, the son just hung around the court and became an executor, something like an ambassador. And that low position makes this praise for him in the inscriptions even more remarkable. Usually, a son who doesn't inherit the throne is skipped over in the inscriptions. Such dangling branches on the family tree spoil this story of an uninterrupted line of glorious kings. But here Derabata is, on the inscriptions, getting embarrassingly high praise. Maybe he deserved it. In the next step, the stories of these two kingdoms start to merge as they start to bump against each other. Up north, Harsha takes his army on a march of vengeance. He recovers his sister, he beats back his rival, and on the warpath he forms these new alliances and he builds an empire. And pretty soon, his armies are sweeping across northern India. Harsha is in charge of much of the great valley of the Ganga. Further south in Katiawa, Shiladirtia's long reign has come to an end. Naturally, he passed the throne on to his younger brother, who is anyway pretty much ruling the kingdom. The usual thing that happens when you have a long-ruling king passing on the throne to his younger brother is that the brother's been waiting for the throne for years and years, and he gets it, and then he dies, because he's quite old when he's come to the throne. I suppose that is why Shiladitya's brother tried to take control before his brother was dead. He didn't want to wait until he was an old man. But anyway, by the time King Shiladitya died and his brother took the throne, his brother was old. He seems to have been in control of Malwa. He had an inscription carved at a camp just outside the great city of Jen. But that's all that we know from his reign, because then, as usual, he died. The throne of the Maitrakas passed down to the next generation. Shiladitya's brother's eldest son was called Dara Sena III. The new king 
of the next generation would come to regret the hasty moves of the previous generation. The previous generation of my trucker kings had pushed into Malwa, and that meant that they had formed a large kingdom. The kingdom now had around eight large provinces, but it was an overextension. The Mitruckers simply didn't have the administrative power to keep all of that running. Or maybe they didn't have the military power to protect all of it. Certainly not against the two empires which had emerged to the north and to the south. Harsha up north with his empire across the plain of the Ganga and the new emperor Pulakesh in Chalokya to the south. Well soon, the southern emperor Pulakesh took his army north and west, heading straight for the Mitruckers' new provinces. The Mitruckers were no match. They abandoned their new gains. They fled back across the gulf to their homeland, into the peninsula. And the new Mitrucker king tried to make himself seem small and harmless. He dropped all of the royal titles, none of that king of kings stuff. That's not me. I'm just an ordinary bloke, you know. Just no need to, to trouble yourself about me and my kingdom. Just leave us alone. He even seemed to have based him his army and his administration, outside of the great wealthy capital with all its merchants, and instead in a smaller place down towards the south of the kingdom. And then, well, then the the new king died. He only ruled about six years. And everything we know about his reign was about diminishing power, loss, retreat. In the final chapter of the tale, the thread of the Mitraka family takes another twist. The throne of the Mitruckers passed to the king's younger brother, Druvasena II. By the way, he was also called Baladitya, power of the sun. But it wasn't strength that won the day for the Mitrucker family. It was cunning. The new Mitrucker king's reign didn't start well. Harsha, emperor of the north, invaded the Katiawa Peninsula. The Mitraka homeland was under siege, and they stood no chance against Harsha's vast and experienced army. That army had been marching up and down and conquering everyone for years. Well, the Mitraka kingdom was lost, the king Druvasena fled, and he fled, rather surprisingly perhaps, to the court of the Gujaras. Now the Gujaras were going to become a, a very important part of the history of India. The modern state of Gujarat is named after the same group of people, But right at this moment, the Gujaras had a pretty small kingdom. Smaller and less powerful even than the Mitraka kingdom. Definitely then far too small to stand against this overwhelming might of Harsha's armies. But you see, Druvasena was not really fleeing to the petty protection of the Gujaras. He was fleeing to protection of the emperor of the south, Pulakeshin. The Gujaras, though they were small, were really just tributary states of the Empire of the South. For this purpose, they were simply part of the Empire of the South. And that meant that if Harsha stormed in and tried to capture Druvasena, he would effectively be starting a war with the Empire of the South. Unfortunately for Druvasena, war with the Empire to the South was exactly what Harsha seemed to have wanted. He wanted to rule the whole of India. And that's probably why he invaded Katiawar and Malwa in the first place. When the invasion of Malwa makes sense, Malwa was the the crossroads of ancient India. 
Its plateau offers roads to the west and also north-south, roads big enough to take an army through. And that's why Malwa had been the site of many of the great battles of ancient Indian history. Its towns, its cities, were littered with the reminders of invasions, from the Huns, the victories and the defeats of the Gupta Empire. Harsha needed Malwa simply so he could easily march his army southwards. And if the invasion of Malwa makes sense for Harsha, then the invasion of Katiwa makes twice as much sense. Like Malwa, it's strategically important. It lies nearby, protecting the way west. Harsha could hardly leave the peninsula in the control of someone who could attack him. And hey, let's face it, the Maitraka family had been opportunistic in the past. Harsha knew that. If Harsha took his army into South India, well, the Maitrakas might invade Malwa and leave him trapped down there. That wouldn't have been the first time the Maitraka family had taken the opportunity to invade Malwa whilst no one was looking. So Harsha wanted to get the Maitrakas off the throne and make sure that no one was going to stab him in the back. But there was more, another reason to invade the peninsula. War is expensive. And Katiwa, home of the Maitraka family, had lots of ports and had rich agriculture besides that, a nice top-up to Harsha's imperial treasury, something to finance the long campaign south. So Harsha wanted to start a war with the Emperor of the South. That was probably the point of invading Katiwa. And Druvasena had fled to the court of one of the southern emperor's little allies. So you might have expected Harsha to just invade the little ally and finish this Maitraka menace once and for all. But that's not what Harsha did. In fact, Harsha did almost exactly the opposite. He sent messages to the court of the enemy, where Druvasena cowered. And the messages gave an offer to Druvasena that the Maitraka king could hardly refuse. Here's the offer. Okay, Druvasena, you become a tributary king, serving me, Harsha. But in return, I'll give you back your ancestral lands in the peninsula. I'll even give you back some of those new provinces your father's generation had won in Malwa. And, even better, I'll give you my daughter. A marriage to seal the deal. It's hard not to imagine Druvasena's jaw dropping at the offer. Think of where he was. Think of how shameful his position had become. He'd lost his kingdom. And he'd been forced to beg at the court of a lesser king for refuge. But it was worse than that, because really he was begging for the southern emperor to protect him. And it was the southern emperor who had played a big role in taking away his kingdom. And he was forced to beg, because he simply had no other chance of winning his kingdom back. He couldn't do it on his own. And with all that shame, here was his enemy, offering his kingdom back and more besides. Well, Druvasena quickly agreed to the deal, and he became Harsha's ally. But in case you're thinking of this deal as oddly one-sided, well, the deal made a good deal of sense for Harsha too. See, Harsha's power rested heavily on the fact that he had so many tributary kings under him. He's often mentioned in inscriptions and stories as, as someone where you know, hundreds of kings come and they see their reflection in the shine of his toenails and all that stuff. Harsha is an emperor who rules on top of hundreds of kings. And one of these little kings, Druvasena, had defected in a sense, had fled to the emperor of the south. 
Harsha didn't want the smaller kings to start sliding away from him to the southern empire. That would lose his power. So he brought Druvasena back into the fold of the northern empire. He won over a loyal supporter. And more than that, a supporter who had governed provinces for Harsha, who would fight to protect Harsha's interests. No wonder Harsha was willing to pay a high price to keep the northern kings loyal to him. Harsha now had an ally at his back, and he sent his army down to confront the empire of the south. Harsha's invasion of the south, well, listeners to the podcast know that that didn't end too well for him, but Harsha's alliance with Druvasena, well, that went about as well as anyone could possibly have hoped for. Druvasena was, ever afterwards, Harsha's loyal ally and friend. And he served him, even practically. Every four years, Harsha would hold a great charitable event, giving away lots of his treasury to religious men and to the poor people. And Druvasena would be there every four years to take part in the festivities. He even had a role. He had to guard one of the gates to the arena of charity, where all this money and all of these goods were lying waiting to be taken. And Druvasena's wife, presumably educated and empowered like many of the Mitraka women, was probably enjoying being back in her father's home. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week, I thought we'd do it a bit differently. I thought we'd just continue the story that we started out the episode with. It's from the Dashakumara Charita, the narrative of ten princes, ten boys, and it's written by a chap called Dundin uh, about this time. The story that we were talking about in the beginning of the episode finishes with a moral. Love is only in the imagination, which somehow the author got from that story. In usual ancient Indian story fashion, it's a story within a story. It's a story being told by one of the characters, one of the ten young men, the ten princes, and it's being told to these rakshas, demanding a story for him. The passage goes on like this. The rakshas, though appearing to be satisfied with these stories, required me to relate that of Nitambhavati, which I proceeded to do. In a city called Madara, there dwelt a man named Kalahakantuka of great strength and vigour, ready at any time to take up the quarrel of a friend, famed for deeds of violence and devoted to pleasures and amusements. One day, he saw a picture exhibited by a painter, a newcomer, and he stopped to look at it. It was the portrait of a lady so beautiful that he fell in love with her at once. Desirous of finding out whom it represented, he praised the picture exceedingly, and having put the artist in good humour, got him to say who the lady was. Her name said he, is Nitambhavati. She is the wife of a merchant living at Avanti or Ujjain, and I was so struck by her beauty that I sought and obtained permission to paint her portrait. On hearing this, Kalahakantaka, taking another name, went to Ujjain, and there, having disguised himself as a mendicant, got admission to the merchant's house, saw the lady, whose beauty exceeded even his expectation, and was confirmed in his wicked purpose. At this time, a guardian or watchman was wanted for the public cemetery, and he applied for and obtained the office. 
With the clothes which he took from the bodies brought to be burnt there, he bribed an old woman to take a message from him. She went to Vitam Bhavati and said, A very handsome young man is much in love with you. Pray let him see you, if only for once. On receiving this message, the merchant's wife was very indignant and sent the old woman away with angry words. Kalahakantaka, however, was not discouraged and said to his messenger, Go again and say to the lady, Do you imagine that a person like me, devoted to religious meditation, who have passed so many years in pilgrimages to holy places, would wish to lead you into sin? Far from it. I had heard that you were childless and wishing for children, and I know of means through which your wish may be accomplished. But I thought it right to find out first whether you were worthy of such a service, and now that I have ascertained you to be virtuous and true to your husband, I will gladly assist you. With this story, the old cheat went again to the lady who, believing her to be sincere, gladly accepted the offer. And she went on to say, The reason of your being childless is that a spell has been laid upon your husband, which can only be removed by the means of which I will indicate to you. Go at night to a clump of trees in the park. I will come to you there and will bring with me a man skilled in incantations. You have only to stand for a moment putting your foot in his hand whilst he utters certain charms, then go home, and as if in play, strike your husband on the breast. This will dissolve the spell and by and by you will have children. Anxious to have the spell removed from her husband, Nisambhavati consented to this and went at night to the appointed place. There she found Kalahankantaka waiting, and as the old man, old woman had directed, put her foot into his hand whilst he knelt before her. No sooner had he got hold of it, than he took off the anklet and slipped his hand up her leg, inflicting a sight wound above the knee, and ran away. The poor lady, dreadfully frightened, blaming herself and enraged with the old woman who had so cruelly deceived her, got home as well as she could, washed and bound up the cut, and kept her bed for several days, having taken off the other anklet, that the loss might not be observed. Meanwhile, the rascal took the anklet he had stolen to the husband, saying, I wish to dispose of this. Will you buy it? Recognising the ornament as having been his wife's, he asked, Where did you get this? The man answered, I will not tell you now, but if you are not satisfied that it is honestly mine, take me before the magistrates and I will then declare how I came by it. Upon this, the merchant went to his wife and said, Let me see your anklets. With some confusion and alarm, she answered, I have any one of them, the other being, I suppose, loosely fastened, dropped off a few days ago, when I was walking in the evening in the garden, and I have not been able to find it. Dissatisfied with this answer, the husband went before the magistrates with the man who had offered the anklet for sale, and he, being there, questioned, said, You know I was appointed not long ago to the care of the public cemetery, and as people come sometimes after dark to steal clothes or to lay a dead body on the pile prepared for another, and so cheat me of my fees, I've lately kept watch there at night. A short time ago, I saw a woman in a dark dress dragging away part of a half-burnt body and ran to seize her. In the struggle, her anklet came off, and I gave her a slight wound on the leg, but she got away, and I could not overtake her. This is how the ornament came into my possession. I leave it to you to say whether I have done wrong or no. Then the magistrates and citizens who assembled were unanimously of the opinion that the woman was a Sakini. She was therefore divorced from her husband and condemned to be tied to a stake in the cemetery and left there. In that state, she was found by Kalahakantaka, who cut the cords which fastened her, and, falling at her feet, confessed all that he had done, alleging his great love for her as an excuse for his cruel conduct. And now, said he, consent to be my wife and I will carry you away to my own home in a distant country where you will not be known. I will do everything in my power to make your life happy and atone for the suffering which I have caused you. 
For a long time, the unhappy lady refused. But at last, overcome by his earnest entreaties and feeling how unjustly she had been disgraced and ill-treated, she consented to accompany him. Thus by cunning, he gained his end, which he could not have accomplished by any other means. Therefore, I say, cunning best accomplishes difficult things. Hopefully that gives something of a, a sense of how the stories of the Ten Princes go. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehill Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link in the description. Until next time, have a great week and take care. <laughs>